All right. For our uh, verses today are Matthew 6, 7 through 8. I'll read those to us. In praying, do not babble like the pagans, who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So I want to reorient us to where we are in the the text, which is um, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. So we have um, in the in the Gospel of Matthew, we're at the section called the Sermon on the Mount, which covers several teachings of Jesus. So the Gospel of Matthew so far has introduced us to the genealogy of Jesus, to the story of his birth, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, and the gathering of his first disciples. The narrative then moves on to describe this teaching, preaching, and healing that Jesus does in his ministry on earth. And the Sermon on the Mount is our introduction to the preaching and teaching of Jesus. It's here that we hear the good news and we're given a vision for what it means to live in the new kingdom that Christ has ushered in. So something that I love, and it is a little bit nerdy, is the um, literary design of, of scripture of the text. Um, It actually increases my wonder and love, literary structure. And scripture is full of literary designs that emphasize certain aspects of the text and help us make connections to other parts of the text and designs that just increase poetic beauty. Um, Most of these designs we never even notice. And sometimes as English speakers and readers, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage. We might miss things that would have been in the Hebrew or the Greek. but I think even if we don't cognitively notice the designs, I, I don't notice them intellectually, I think we feel the form of them. I think these designs still work in helping us understand and love the scripture. So one of the literary features, there's two different kinds of literary features that I'm gonna talk about here in the beginning. And one of um, the features in the account of the Sermon on the Mount is just that Jesus ascends up on a mountain is that it takes place with Jesus preaching from the top of a mountain. When he sees the crowds, he goes up onto the mountain and with some audience participation, especially from the Burke kids, um, what do you think of, where else in the Bible have you noticed a mountain? You, you may answer as well. <laughs> it's like, what other mountains can you think of in scripture, in the Bible? Any mountain. I know you're thinking of mountains. <laughs> Where the ark landed. Yes, exactly. Mount Ararat, uh, the ark lands on a mountain. So a mountain in that story is a place where uh, God provides for Noah and his family, right? Uh, brings the people through water to safety. So there's a mountain there. Yes. What else? Any other mountains? Mount Sinai, yes, the place where Moses goes up a mountain and receives word from God, receives the law, right? The Ten Commandments. Any other mountains? The transfiguration happens on a mountain, yes, which is coming later in the text. So you guys gave me some Old Testament examples. Yes, and the transfiguration happens on a mountain, right? Um, Where uh, we see Jesus with Moses and Elijah all on top of a mountain, also Elijah was, went to the top of a mountain too, right? Um, so we saw Elijah up there. Yeah, so we, so thank you. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of mountains in the Bible. Um, and at the literal level of the story, just on a practical level, it makes so much sense that Jesus is teaching from the top of a mountain, right? Better acoustics, more people can gather and see, so there's better seating, better um, uh, 
better uh, chance of people, more people hearing. Um, but at another level, maybe especially for those of us reading the text later who have uh, the, we have the ability to have stories that come after this mountain, and we've heard stories of mountains that come before this mountain in the Old Testament, we might notice a pattern uh, of mountains in the Bible. Mountains in scripture are where people go to hear from God, where they meet with God, where they receive provision from God. Uh, mountains also are associated with God's majesty and power and strength all over the Psalms. Mountains act like a poetic symbol. Um, but we also have... Uh, in the very beginning, the um, ancient conception of the cosmos, Eden is on the top of a mountain, right? And we see that with the rivers going down. There's a sense that Eden is on a mountain, um, the place where Adam and Eve walked with God. We have Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark comes to rest in safety after the flood. Mount Sinai, where Moses received the gift of the law from God. Elijah encountered God on a mountain. Also, there's lots of parallels here with Moses and Elijah as like types of leaders who hear from God that are up on a mountain. Um, and this type of leader is the one that the Israelites have been waiting for. Uh, in Matthew, there are going to be six major scenes that happen on mountains. So there's gonna be a lot of mountains just in Matthew. This, we've already encountered one earlier at Jesus's temptation was on a, you know, there's a mountain in that uh, episode. Then we've got another one here with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see a lot of healings on mountains in Matthew. The transfiguration is in Matthew 17. And then the commissioning of the apostles will happen on a mountain in Matthew 28. So that this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, that it happens on a mountain, associates this part of the text with the other mountain stories. And our imagination can pull in connections to mountains as a significant places of God's help, wisdom, and blessing. So pulling this all in. Another literary form that I wanted to talk about, and this I have a visual for you on the back of the order of service. I have sort of listed out this chiasm here. And this is another mountain. It's another kind of a mountain. I wrote it like this because it's easier to read, but if you turn it on its side, get it? It's like it's a mountain. It makes the shape of a mountain. I know, cool, right? Thank you, Zoe. <laughs> I thought so too. <laughs> so um, this is a literary structure called a chiasm, and it's very popular with biblical authors. There's lots of chiasms in scripture, uh, in Psalms and in poetry, but also here in the Gospels. Uh, the basic idea of a chiasm is that this is a structure where a series of ideas sort of match each other. So there will be like parallel ideas in the text like leading up to one idea and then leading away. So you will find, you can see the way that I've lined out these parallel ideas. And I based this on the work of Jonathan Pennington in his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. I changed some of the things, but you'll see we have um, in Matthew 5, 1 through 2, Jesus ascending the mountain. And then we have the invitation and instruction for the kingdom of God. He talks about the Beatitudes, salt, city on a hill. Uh, then Jesus gives six words about the law. He talks about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love. Then there's, um, then we see that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Then we have a word, this little like triptych in the center where Jesus talks about giving and prayer and fasting. So I have kind of, there's these three things 
that Jesus talks about. And I have paired giving and fasting as sort of parallels, bookending prayer. Um, you also have another six words, six little teachings, this time on, you know, so kind of paralleling anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love. You have these little uh, teachings, par- lots of parables in here too, about earth and heaven, the eye, uh, judging, log speck, pearl swine. The, we'll get to these. We haven't, you know, been through these yet in this uh, sermon series, in this study of Matthew. But I have those six teachings paired with the six teachings above. Then you will have the golden rule fulfilling the law and the prophets. You have an exhortation to walk in the way. And then you have descending the mountain. So you can see how these things sort of pair with the things above them. And some of them pair really well. And some of them, it's a little bit of a looser tie, but also sometimes the chiasmic pairs um, make sense because of the language, the original language. So we definitely lose that in the English a little bit. Uh, but look at the center of the chiasm, the thing that it's pointing to, because what a chiasm does is it points to the center of itself as a highlighted section. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the center of the chiasm is the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we begin with three heavenly petitions. So if you look back to the prayer that we just prayed, the petitions are, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And in this section where Jesus is teaching them to pray, the very center of the center of the chiasm. So if the Lord's Prayer is the center of the chiasm, The center of the Lord's prayer is on earth as it is in heaven. And then there's three petitions for earthly needs. Daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, and those who forgive our, uh, who trespass against us, and the lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the center of the center is that on earth as it is in heaven. Um, So that phrase then is the heart of the section. That phrase is what is being highlighted. This prayer and that center of that prayer is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is giving us a glimpse of how to live as citizens of heaven while we're here on earth. Um, Backing out a bit. So those are the the top of the mountain there in the chiasm. But... um, Backing out a bit, we see that the, those parallel sections I mentioned that I paired are the topics giving and fasting, kind of encasing prayer. So giving, prayer, and fasting, are, those are the three topics that Jesus speaks on as ways we get to live in this kingdom of heaven. And of the three, Jesus gives the most words to prayer. Um, and then he'll even give us the example of the Lord's Prayer that we'll continue to um, meditate on in future sermons. But all three are connected. So this is something else that I thought was interesting. All three ideas, um, fasting, giving, and prayer, are connected with the idea of a warning against being a hypocrite, this avoiding of being a hypocrite. And I actually learned something about the word hypocrite this week. That the, the Greek word, hypocrites, is a word for actor, for the role of a stage player. So that does feel connected to how we understand the word in English, hypocrite, right? It's the insides not matching the outsides. Um, But some of the imagery in this section made more sense to me, knowing that it added to my my understanding of the term. So insides not matching the outsides is fake, like acting. Um, Sometimes I think of hypocrisy as saying something and then doing another thing. But the Pharisees say something and then they do it. 
it's just the orientation of their heart. The insides don't match the outsides, right? The, the motivation for why they're doing something maybe doesn't match um, why they purport to do it. So, uh, but the thing about it being a stage player, I thought it was really interesting. Um, once you know that that is referring to acting, to, to actors of the time, because uh, when it says, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogue, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Um, in the ancient theater, they would sound a trumpet whenever a well-known actor came onto the stage. So I thought that that was just interesting, the way this idea of acting is tied through. Um, in ancient theater, they wear these heavy masks when they're performing plays, you know, the comedy and tragedy masks you might be familiar with. We still have the graphic. For the, but they would wear these big heavy masks so you wouldn't know if a well-known actor was in town or a famous actor. You wouldn't necessarily know when they got onto the stage. So just to make sure that you know that the star is there, they blow this trumpet. So he's saying, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet like, like the actors do when they come onto the stage. Um, also, when uh, Jesus warns people not to be like the hypocrites when they pray, and he compares the attention they get to that of actors and their behavior to that of actors. Later, when he mentions fasting, he's going to warn them. Jesus is going to warn people not to be gloomy or twist their faces, um, a reference to those exaggerated masks that actors wear. So you know, you know exactly who um, the the villains or the stars are. You know exactly how the character is supposed to feel because they have these twisted, over-exaggerated faces in these masks. So that acting, the performance of relationship with God for the attention of man, that's not an image of earth as it is on heaven. And Tyrone led us through prayer and the avoidance of attention-seeking prayer last week. And this week, our scripture reading adds on to Jesus's admonition on how to pray. Our scripture this week is, in praying, do not babble like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So not only does Jesus warn against praying for attention of man, he reminds us here against, about the character of the one that we are praying to. We don't pray to a weak God that requires badgering and babbling to take notice to hear us. The prayer described here, this babbling of pagans, is a, a, a way of praying that assumes we need to demand attention um, and maybe value quantity over quality. But Jesus reminds us we're praying to somebody that already knows our needs. I don't think this is a warning against frequent prayer or against requests or against using lots of words. I think just like the warning against praying like a hypocrite, I think this is also about the orientation of our hearts as we pray. Do we pray as people who understand that the one we pray to knows our needs? Or do we pray as if the volume and quantity of our request will get us what we want? Are we praying just to badger and get what we want, like pagans? Um, or are we praying as people in awe of God, longing to participate in relationship, hoping to fully inhabit the kingdom of God? Jesus says, your father knows what you need. So he's calling us children, and we're invited to pray to a good father as beloved children. Um, I'd like to suggest that Jesus' teaching here offers us space to consider the orientation of our hearts as we pray, and to correct it, to find correction if we find ourselves convicted. He also isn't going to leave us wondering how to pray. So immediately after giving those examples of how not to pray, those warnings against uh, 
an unhelpful orientation of the heart. Jesus follows up with an example of exactly how we can pray well. He reminds us that we are children, that we have a father, and he gives us this example. So let's close here and just say it again together, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.